Hello again, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Behind the Decks, a vent podcast series hosted by its founder and editor-in-chief, Freddie Cocker. That's me. Each pod, I check in with DJs and producers from the UK and beyond, discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the decks. My special guest for this episode, listeners, is someone who is no doubt going to bring out the big music nerd in me. His name is Connor, or as he is otherwise known, Mr. Wax. Connor started out his career as a producer in the UK jungle scene before becoming captivated by two genres from the internet music scene, known as Future Funk and Vaporwave. If I had to describe what these are to you, I'd probably say they are two feel-good but very niche underground dance music genres. Thankfully, you'll hear all about them and have a Future Funk education during the course of this pod. In the last couple of years, Connor has moved away from these dance music labels to carve out his own creative identity, which has brought its own set of pressures and challenges along the way. Get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Decks with Mr. Wax. Connor, welcome to Behind the Decks, mate. Um, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to, to come on and talk to me. First off, you know how are you doing and, and, and how are you coping with the general madness right now? Uh, hi, yeah. Um, it feels great to be here. Uh, I'm right. doing well, actually. Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, like I say, there's a lot of information going on in the world at the minute. So, um, yeah, a bit, bit of a uh, madness on you know social media, mm. uh, a bit of a minefield. But, you know, that's the world's evolving. So, yeah, just, just keep it in touch. Perfect. Well, we've got a lot to get, get through. So shall we just crack on and get started? Let's go. Let's start right at the beginning, Connor, and talk about your journey as Mr. Wax. Now, firstly, how did your love affair with music begin? Just tell me a bit about some of your favourite records growing up, your music idols and inspirations, and, and how you first got into producing. Okay, so to, to be honest, I wasn't a musical child. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really find my muse until probably about beginning of secondary school. Uh, in fact, <laughs> my, my first ever CD was Hardcore Heaven 4. <laughs> I was in year six, so yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. But uh, from what I can remember, see, I was at my grandparents' house and I saw one of the adverts on TV for a compilation CD, and I couldn't believe that parties like that existed. You know, everyone was having such a good time and just going crazy. So I thought, you know, it's just something I wanted to explore. So when I got a bit older, um, learned about Daft Punk, Dead Mouse. They were kind of my idols as I was going into music um, and it started from me wanting to figure out how are these guys making music without traditional instruments because prior to that that's all I'd known so uh, from there I just kind of did my own research and it led me down all these paths of discovering music production and how it goes hand in hand with DJing and you know what that world encompasses uh, yeah, and then from there, it just blossomed. I just kept learning more and more and more. You started out in the UK jungle scene, if I'm right in saying. Who were some of your favourite MCs or DJs, you know, in that scene? There's there's the obvious ones like General Levy, Goldie, Congo Natty, ShyFX, DJ Hype and Zinc. But who else were you listening to back then that you were really inspired by and got you into that sort of scene? Well, you absolutely named my heroes right there. So <laughs> that was a good start. Um, 
Well, for starters, the guy who taught me to, to DJ in the first place was there's someone called DJ Junior Massive. Um, he was also a jungle DJ, and that was how I got introduced to jungle. Um, from there, yeah, kind of everything on Metalhead was, I just think it's pure gold, all of it. Um, Goldie Timeless was, was probably one of my favorite jungle EPs ever released. Uh, Doc Scott as well. Doc Scott's another one of my faves. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I, I was really a big fan of Tom and Jerry. I think they renamed, they renamed their act to something, but back when Tom and Jerry were Tom and Jerry, they made some of the best <laughs> jungle records I've ever heard of. Mm. And what was it specifically about Jungle and the sound that that really inspired you and 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 kind of had an impact on you, really? I think so. I was in college when I found out about Jungle, and uh, that was back when you know everyone on the course was was filled up with dubstep or uh, drum and bass. And mm. when I heard Jungle, there was just something crisp and slightly more uh, welcoming about the records. And I think they they held how can I say this? They held more of a a party vibe, like anyone could come to a jungle gig and have a, mm. a wicked time. Mm. Um, it was less hardcore, um, and you know the sample based production, uh, similar to Future Funk, as I can as I'll talk about later. But they they take these great snippets from records and and they turn them into these you know dance floor anthems. So. Yeah, just something about that uh, kind of chilled out rave vibe is what, mm. what got me into it. Mm. You you discovered Future Funk and Vaporwave whilst at university, which we'll discuss later on in the pod. But let's set the scene for the listeners first, as 99% of them won't have ever heard of Future Funk or Vaporwave. Just tell them about how these genres began, you know, which came first and, and who were some of the earliest producers. You know, a lot of Future Funk in particular derived its origins from Japan and a certain brand of disco they had in the 1980s called City Pop. Is that right? Yeah, so... I mean, Vaporwave definitely came before Future Funk. Future Funk was a tangent that came came from that. Mm. Um, you know, from I think the general consensus is uh, Chuck is it Pearson Chuck Parson Chuck Pearson's mm-hmm. uh, Eco Jams were was the first uh, solid Vaporwave release. But I've got to be honest with you, my my actual knowledge of Vaporwave itself is fairly limited. Uh, mm. I, I I heard about Vaporwave after Future Funk, considerably considerably after Future Funk. Mm, um, yeah, so I, I think it started as an art movement. Now I think that's easy to for most people to agree on. Is it began as this kind of experiment in audio visual uh, productions? You know, with with these strange, re- well, if I can call them strange edits or remixes of old tunes um, and just change them up completely. Uh, mm. And I think more so than na- nowadays, there used to be a much heavier presence of, of a visual component. A lot of the classics would come with you know, accompanying videos or whether or not they were made by the producer, they certainly became famous with it, like the Macintosh Plus video or any of the Blank Banshee releases. Mm. And on on Future Funk in particular, because that's obviously where you sort of cut your teeth as a producer, how would you describe 
you know, future funk? Because I, I often describe it as to friends as sort of disco on speed. Is, is that something you'd recognize or relate to? It's also a genre littered with artwork taken from Japanese anime cartoons and normally seems to sample sort of snippets and, and, and vocal samples from like films from the 1980s, which is quite weird to describe to people. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's, there's a heavy theme of, of Showa Japan, which is kind of, mm. you know, uh, late 70s and the 80s in, in Japan. And for whatever reason, that culture's resonating with, with people on the internet. Um, for me personally, because obviously it resonated with me too, that's what got me into it. Um, it's the alternative, or almost an alternative world to what I was used to. Uh, the 80s in England looks nothing like the 80s in Japan, in my 100%. perspective. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say it, it's discount speed an adequate description because they're taking that groove of disco and funk, um, which are kind of they're the staples of what made those records good for a lot of people, and you're turning it into something that's applicable to all audiences, you know, across the internet. Um, people who are fans of disco and funk can relate to it because of the source material. Those mm. who weren't fans of disco and funk beforehand, like myself, it opens like a whole new horizon of music, both in future funk and based off the source material. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think it, it's all about providing people with uh, that kind of ecstasy feeling, but you're not entirely sure why why you love it so much it's just something about this specific few seconds of looped music that brings joy to so many people the future funk scene in particular is, is really thriving right now and you spoke about kind of future funk sort of opening your eyes to disco in, in in my experience i was already into disco massively but it actually opened my eyes to city pop and now i'm a massive city pop fan and i went through all the sort of archives of 80s japanese um disco the likes of um yoko Aganomi and uh yunko ahashi and i could go on and on and on um in america and canada you have sort of a great scene with with future funk gods like young bay skylar spence or saint pepsi however you want to call him whatever moniker he's going by nowadays um, and tendencies whereas in japan you have this really really thriving scene you've got producers like night tempo vantage and, and macross 8299 first off you know how do those scenes compare for the listeners who might want to go on a deep dive into them after this pod and and how did you draw inspiration from them yourself when you were starting out in the uk scene you know, you're not you weren't the only UK producer either, I should point out, because you've got the likes of Strawberry Station and Melonade to name a couple. But, you know, how did you distinguish those scenes from each other and, and where, where did you draw your inspiration from? So my first gigs doing just Future Funk were when I was in university um, with another producer, Future Funk producer called Jelly Bonbon. And basically we, we weren't doing gigs to a future funk crowd, if that makes sense. We were doing it to university crowd. Mm. So from that, I kind of, I kind of, it was, it was a whole different experience to what the gigs were like in Japan. Because uh, when I was in Japan, these shows were future funk shows, and you know the likes of uh, Mikazuki Big Wave or Kiss Me Nerdy Girl, they were there, and people were there for that specific music. People wanted vaporwave, and people knew what that was, which. It's so encouraging to, you know, find, like have these people in real life that are approaching you saying they like your music or, you know, they really like them, the music I'm playing, Vaporwave, Future Funk, etc. Um, so, yeah, that's the immediate distinguish between 
my two experiences. But mm-hmm. having said that, I did Group Horizons last year, which was my first, uh, well, second true future funk gig in the UK. Um, and it was just mind blowing. The, the energy was so high, like the collective energy. Everyone was just there for the exact same reason to have a good time. There was no judgment, no hostility all night. And in that sense, uh, it was very similar to, to Japan. So I would, I would draw more comparisons with the actual music being played at the shows as opposed to the, the cultures of the different mm-hmm. countries. Before we talk about the, you know, the first ever album that, that was Future Funk that you listened to, um, I just want to quickly talk about, whilst, you're, whilst we're on this topic, um, that moment you described off air when you met a fan for the first time. You know, just talk to me about that moment and, 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 and how big of bigger moment it was in your life. Yeah, so it, it's, it's one of those moments where you don't really know what to say because I'd never had that experience before. Um, and then it, it was at... It was actually a pre-show before the gig, which was the next day. It was in this shisha bar. And, uh, yeah, he came over and he said that he's a DJ and, you know, he loves my music. And we ended up jamming together on the decks. And, um, yeah, at first I thought, ah, he's just kind of someone's friend or something. Maybe he doesn't really know my music. But he did know. I mean, you know, he had favorite tunes and stuff and there was nothing really else. I just felt really thankful. I thought I felt kind of, uh, net positive in life. Kind of, I, once I realized that my music's impacting someone else, it's just a really feel good feeling. I am very grateful. Mm. The first future funk album you listened to was young Bay's debut album, Bay. What impact did that album have on you and, and how did it help you on this producer journey? So my experience with sample-based music, like I said earlier, was was jungle or dubstep or hip-hop. So when I was introduced to Future Funk through this album, I'd never heard this kind of music. I forgot what the actual sample was um, on the tune I Want Your Love, but I'd mm. just never heard that stuff sampled in, in, a, in this way, and uh, it was just completely new to my ears which might sound pretty naive, was quite naive, but uh, yeah, and I just fell in love with it instantly. It was something I'd just never heard before. Um, and you know, when, you know when you watch a new movie or you listen to a song, and even though it's not your usual style, something about it just kind of captivates you. And that's what it was like for me. So I just thought after that, just got to dive straight in. This is a good opportunity for me to explore this scene and you know, broaden my horizons with sampling and just see what's out there. Mm. Let's talk about Mr. Wax in a bit more depth. So first off, where did the name come from and, and how did you get into sort of the art of music production itself? You know, you said off air that, uh, like we've said previously, you discovered Future Funk in a period of your university where you actually said you felt quite demotivated. Just just talk to me about how you were feeling in that moment and and, and how you stumbled upon this hub of up-tempo feel-good music okay yeah um yeah, so i'll start with the name the the name mr wax comes from when i was in college part of our i was studying music technology and one of our modules was uh learning performance music technology and performance um so i decided i'm going to learn vinyl because it just seemed 
like uh, not something that's that's too common these days. And uh, while all the equipment was there, I thought this is a golden opportunity. And I enjoyed using them so much, just the feeling. And it's almost kind of like a puzzle trying to beat match them. Um, I fell in love with it. And uh, yeah, I just decided I'm the only guy on this course. Well, bar, there's two or three of us on the course doing vinyl. I'm going to be Mr. Wax. <laughs> sort of like nightmares on wax, but a little bit different. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so going on to university, I was studying Japanese for my first year of uni and I was struggling, particularly with kanji. I'm sure any person that's listening that studies Japanese can like totally relate, but I struggled with it to the point where I was neglecting studying it because I was just like, I can't do this, I can't do this. Um, and I wound up failing my year just before I was meant to go to Japan for a year. So with all majority of my friends had moved on to Japan by this point. And uh, I started my second year in a new flat with new people. And I just thought, man, I, I've, I've thrown away my opportunity, my dream of living in Japan or learning a new language. is just gone because I failed to study. Um, so yeah, yeah. And then the future funk came along because uh, Jelly Bonbon, who also was studying Japanese, he dropped out because he wanted to pursue music. Um, so he t- he texted me and he said, oh, do you want to go KFC? So I was like, oh, yeah. So we went for some KFC and we had just the craziest conversation about, oh, God, I, if he was here, he'd tell you. It's like seven dimensions or I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was some brain melting stuff. <laughs> some serious music nerd chat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it wasn't even music. It was just it was just seven dimensions of reality. We just went on this crazy talk. Bear in mind, we only hung out a couple of times before this. Um, so we went on this crazy bonding session at KFC. And as we left, he was like, oh, do you make music? I was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, me too. So, yeah, he told me about Future Funk and he came over to my flat. Uh, and he showed me what he'd been working on. This is before he actually started posting. And from there, we're like, we're just like proper true brothers now. Inseparable. And if he's listening to this pod, what would you say to him? Well, I would say thank you because I pretty much hit a brick wall um, in both creativity and encouragement. Uh, and just since, since, pretty much since the uh since that day he's just been supportive or like so supportive of my music and you know my progress whatever i'm looking to do so yeah much love to him as always you, you said off air that actually that the, the future funk and vaporwave scenes were full of really ambitious and supportive producers who who weren't afraid to experiment and, and try new creative ideas whilst having no marketing support and, and zero recognition in the wider music scene do you think looking back that its underground status actually helped you break into it as a producer, maybe boosted your confidence and, and helped the scene be that supportive and, and collaborative environment you needed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, I mean, so the first person I spoke to in the scene was Desired. And I sent him this, I'm using quotation marks right now, you can't see them, but Future Funk edit of a character <laughs> Bonito song. And he came back to me. He was like, nah, this isn't future funk. <laughs> <laughs> so 
yeah, he, he just said, he was like, no, I said, this sample, he said, it's, it's a good, it's a good tune, but this sample is not future funk. Like, you, you can make music with this, but you can't make future funk because that's just not what the genre is. So he gave me some pointers on uh, artists to look at or like styles of music. And that's how my uh, first, in fact, I'm pretty sure I finished my first EP like the next week or something. Mm. Um, so yeah, having these slightly bigger names, I think at the time Desired was on about 4,000 followers. To me, or someone who was on like 100 followers, that was that's like oh my god people can notice me already uh, and it is a massive encouragement and all social media is is great for that kind of thing people in future funk and vaporwave in particular in particular future funk i'd say are very very approachable and uh warming to both their peers and their fans mm, it sounds it um Talking about, you know, you as a producer now, what impact does producing have on your mental health or, you know, when you're in the studio in that moment cooking up some bangers? So, yeah, I've been, I have thought about this before. It depends on, on my real, real world emotions at that time. If I'm feeling sad, I'm, I'm, it's not going to, it's not going to stop me producing, but I'm much more likely to produce a sad song. Um, and I kind of, I had this conversation with someone once and they asked, if you're, if you're sad, do you listen to happy music to uplift you? Or do you, do you create sad music or listen to sad music as like a vessel for your emotions? And I realized I'm, I listen to sad music because I need mm. to, I need to work my way through how I'm feeling. Um, so yeah, that, it, that's how, Music productions affected my uh, emotions or, or the way I'm feeling. Because some of my best songs, in my opinion, have come from either me feeling really low, you know, maybe my crush turned me down. That's that's real reason why I made some feature <laughs> fun. Um, my crush turned me down or... I failed doing something at school or, or my friends upset me or something, something as trivial as that can just mm. lead to these creative outbursts. I think it's important to not, to, to not uh, dwell on your emotions and whether you're a music producer or not, I think it's good to find a, a vessel to, you know, um, like exhibit how you're feeling. Mm. Speaking of down moments, you know, every producer or DJ also has at least one bad set in their life. We talked about the good sets and then your first one with Jelly Bonbon. Some even have two or three bad sets. Is there one performance that sticks out in your mind that you feel comfortable talking about? You know, just just tell me what happened and and more importantly, maybe what you learned from it as well. Yeah, um, let's think. I mean, there's been a few slip-ups in, in a few, <laughs> quite a few sets, but <laughs> the one that stands out to me was um, I was doing a party with another DJ and uh, we were having a good time. We had a smoke machine and we, we used the hell out of this smoke machine and it set the firearms off. <laughs> Everyone had to be evacuated. And then after everything was cleared, we went back in and we kind of just had to carry on DJing. It was just so awkward because <laughs> you're like, oh, because there's like no one in there. Yeah, yeah. There's like not many people, and we can't use the smoke machine anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, it was a bit dead. But um, yeah, I think that's probably the worst one I've done. No other slip-ups have been uh, catastrophic, really. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Um, going back to what you talked about with the with the community aspect of Future Funk Con, um, in those days when you were when you were firmly within the scene, was it also a community that supported each other when it came to mental health as well? You know, what, had, did you ever kind of go to any producers and and say like I'm struggling with this creatively or I'm struggling with this mental health wise, and or and did any producers ever come to you as well? Yeah, so I think the support, certainly from my observations comes in collaborations. Um, Future Funk and, uh, and Vaporwave and, you know, even like the lo-fi hip-hop scene, which I also consider to be fairly closely related, um, they, they, a lot of people are very, very open to supporting others in creating something new if they've hit a dead wall. Uh, and that, I think, indirectly, that helps people's mental health because even though you're not face-to-face with most of these people, hearing that someone, whether they're bigger or smaller than you, someone wants to work with you to help you, then it's really, really encouraging. Um, and, yeah, I think I think that's one of the best points about that community. It's small enough that, you, that word gets out and you can meet so many people uh, so fast. Mm. As you broke into the scene, was there a particular moment where you felt like you had, you know, been accepted into it or belonged in it? Was it a nice DM from a producer you admired, a great DJ set, or, or like you said previously, a compliment from a fan? You know, just tell me a bit about maybe the one moment that sticks out in your mind. I think it was possibly artsy music is is one. Um, one when I got a record posted on artsy music. I felt like, uh, without, yeah, without trying to swell my own head up, like it felt like the community has seen seen my name, mm. um, which then it was a collaboration with Groovy Godzilla, now now Groovy Kaiju, um, yeah, and after that I thought, oh, I didn't think I would ever get noticed by this kind of leading channel in the scene. Um, and after that, I got approached by a collective called Sunrise Collective, Future Funk Collective. Um, yeah, and from there, I, f- I felt accepted pretty much. Um, mm. And ever since, I felt accepted. I've never felt like I've been brushed aside or or no one's listening to me or something. Um, mm. And I think, it, personally, I think it's getting better because even I see now a lot of small... I don't, when I say small, I'm not belittling them. I'm, I mean, like to, in terms of follower base, smaller producers that are able to interact with, uh, you know, for lack of better terms, the the big producers because of uh, because of social media, um, the acceptance is is far easier to attain in my experience. Mm. Let's talk about those early Mr. Wax days now. I believe the first record you ever made was a track called Inner City Nights in 2016. Is that right? Just just tell me a bit about how that record came about and what it meant to you. You know, how do you look back on on that? And are you still quite proud of it? Or, or do you cringe at all like some old Facebook posts? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I don't cringe at it because every time I listen to it, 
it just immediately transports me back to that time where I just discovered Future Funk. So it's only good memories associated with it. I know it doesn't sound great, um, like technically it doesn't sound great, but yeah, I, it's just that track came about because I'd been listening to Bay over and over, and I was <laughs> like, I was like, there, there was a bit in the sample in in uh, I Want Your Love, and I thought, oh man, that's a well nice synth. How did he make that synth? <laughs> like not knowing it's a sample, <laughs> so <laughs> I was trying to recreate it and. If you listen to to uh, Inner City Nights, well, yeah, Inner City Nights, yeah, you can hear this like horrible screechy synth at some point <laughs> where I was trying to copy Young Bay. But yeah, um, I don't have any resentment towards my early Future Funk. And the exact reason I didn't go back and remaster them is because if I did that, I would I'd be like overwriting the original conception. Hmm. You put out a series of singles after this called I Guess You Were Right, Love You and Never Give Up. You had a you had a really high production rate in these days and SoundCloud was your main vehicle for putting out music. Are there any records in this period of life, you know, including them or excluding them that, that were quite important to you or, or, or have taken a, on a deeper meaning looking back? Yeah, so one of the standout records, it's not mine, but uh, was, was this by Tennyson. It was called For You. And it just completely, I, the, once I heard this tune, it's just like a kind of electronic jazz. Uh, and I thought it was amazing. And it just made me want to experiment more and more and more, uh, which I didn't do for a while, purely because I, I felt a bit pigeonholed into future, future funk. So mm. I, I thought, I want to get really good at future funk. Well, I want to get good at future funk, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then then I'll see where that takes me. But um, yeah, in terms of my own records, <clears throat> I think as a personal favourite of mine was uh, I'm trying to think about what records I've actually made now. Maybe Sipping Lean was one that I had so much fun making because. I, I wasn't really making a new track. I was making a, a bootleg or an edit. Um, and it, it blew up. And I, for a while, I felt guilty because I thought, uh, I don't want people to think this is, you know, my music. Because I, while I did, I produced this track, it's really homage to, to the source material. It was a Seiko Matsuda song, I think. Um, I'll have to check, but yeah, so that, that one's like, that was like the peak of me thinking, man, playing around with these samples is so much fun. Um, then after that, I tried to make it get a bit more real. I tried to put a lot more effort into making future fun, which was great, but I just, I just stopped enjoying it eventually. Um, mm. which kind of led me up to, to music medicine where I decided, I decided I've just got to take the plunge. Um, so then I, I made that crazy tune, C-Punk 2, which is one of my personal favorites of my non-sample music because it just encompasses everything I enjoy about music. You know, hanging out with my friends, showing them 
the music and just having fun together, which is what it's all about for me. Mm. But that kind of brings me on to the next question, Connor, which is about music medicine. Would you say that this is the proudest piece of work you've done and, and what significance does it have for you in your life? Yeah, it's definitely up there with the proudest stuff I've done. Um, it's, the significance for me was marking a change in my direction. And I, the reason I didn't want to make an album was because like I was a bit afraid that people who are, who are following me for future funk would feel like I kind of disregarded their support. So I thought I'll test the water with this EP. Uh, and I did put the a future funk track in there because I thought I don't want to, don't want to leave my future funk fans high and dry. Um, so that's the significance of that. But yeah, my proudest work was, it was under a different moniker. I mean, I made, I made some kind of dark sci-fi synthwave and the, the my vision of this tune was so precise to the actual product I created. I've never been able to <laughs> go back there because I was just so pleased with the final product. So that's my current goal is to make a tune that I'm so happy with. It tops that feeling. Mm. In the last couple of years, you've moved away from Future Funk and Vaporwave, um, like I've said in the intro. You said off air that by moving away from this scene, you felt you almost had like a, a feeling of anxiety that you were you were letting people down who supported you and, and a sense of sort of pseudo guilt. What did you mean by that? So I think it's not, it's not the first time, I mean, it's not uncommon to see in music. And of course, my case is on a much smaller scale, but... Uh, when you think about, let's think of some examples. Uh, for example, Eminem, who went from being Slim Shady to, I can't remember his, his later albums. but uh, Marshall Mathers? Yeah, yeah. So he his tone changed you know, as time went on. And he got, he got considerable backlash for it. And, um, I don't think it's justified, but you see the same with Daft Punk and uh, Random Access Memories. A lot of hardcore fans were disappointed that it wasn't French House. Um, and the same, I mean, if you want to look at a more recent example, I think Joji transitioning from being an internet comedian to serious musician, it seems like it, it was a bit of a struggle. And so I'd, I'd been exposed to all this and I thought, even though it's a small scale, I feel like people that have uh, invested their time or invested uh, their money in what I'm doing, is that in vain if I just stop because I want to? I felt kind of selfish for, for, for that. Um, but like I said, I, just, I, I talked to it, I talked about it um, to a lot of people and just got to, I, I, you've just got to put yourself first in this kind of situation because at the end of the day, it's my creativity. And as much as I, I want to please as many people as I can with my products, not everyone's going to be pleased. And it, once you accept that that's okay, uh, you can start to overcome it, which is what I discovered. Mm, I completely agree with you, mate. And, and you're not selfish at all for, for doing what you did. Let's talk about your new projects now. You, you just released a new single called Dream Realm. How did that come about? And, and how did you how do you reflect that move away from, from Future Funk in a more tangible way with this record? So, 
Um, Dream Realm is the second single from my upcoming album, Internet Pagan, uh, which... Great name. (laughs) Yeah, Internet Pagan was just kind of me putting my foot down saying, I'm just going to make a load of music how I want to make it. Um, I don't want to... I don't want to adhere specifically to any one pathway for my album. Here's just some some music that I think is good enough to release. Um, and Dream Realm is, is one of my favorite tracks from the album. It's kind of just synth house. Uh, I've, since I created Music Medicine, I've discovered how I really enjoy experimenting with chords and uh, vintage sounding synths. Uh, and I just love the combination of house drums, garage drums, breakbeat drums, that, you know, that kind of dancing drums with uh, retro wave sounding synths. So it was kind of born from experimentation, but I'm beginning to find a style of music, which I consider to be, you know, something, a piece of myself, and I'm really enjoying making it. So, yeah. Yeah. Reflecting on this journey, Con, how, how do you sort of look back on those early days of Future Funk and, and Vaporwave to where you are now? You know, what have you what have you learned about yourself, and and how has it shaped you into the person who's speaking to me now? Yeah, so I look back on those times really, really fondly, uh, and I was I was never really an introvert, but hanging out with people in that scene, talking to people in that scene, showing people online and offline what I can do was just a, it's, it helps me helped me come out of my shell it helped me be able to say this is who I am and you know you, it's not really a take it or leave it type situation it's it's just me saying this is who I am this is what I like if you like it that's cool if you don't like it what do you like kind of thing mm. um and just being it allowed me to accept my individualism knowing mm. that whether or not I see these people in the street or not, there are people that also enjoy showing individualism and support my individualism. So it was a big step up for self-confidence, I think. And I think the internet is underrated and sometimes berated for for how people how it can affect people's mental health. But for me, it was a very positive experience using the internet so frequently. Mm. Making music and, and DJing for the number of years of years you have con, what are some of the realities that people might not see about the life of a producer, and has it ever impacted on other parts of your life positively or negatively? Um, you have to be open to criticism. That's that's something that I would argue vaporwave and future funk doesn't necessarily prepare you for because it's so positive most of the time, um, and I think it's. Of course, this applies for any producer. You have to be open to criticism, of course. Um, But I think because of this tight-knit community, I have seen it on websites like Reddit or Twitter. Uh, Criticism often comes in a much more blunt or sometimes, uh, sometimes not very nice package. So I think... The lesson that I've, that I've learned was learn how to take criticism and how to give criticism constructively. Because it's, it's easy to think that people are just 
making Future Funk and making Vaporwave uh, for a few seconds of fame or whatever. But maybe that is the case for some people. But other times, um, they really are putting time and they want to get good at this. So I, I think it's it's important to learn how to how to look at both sides of the equation. We've talked about Mr. Wax. Let's go behind the decks now and talk about your own journey, Connor. So firstly, just tell me a bit about your early life, your childhood years, your teenage years, and whether any mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint looking back. Who's the Connor we meet here? So um, I didn't have a a particularly exceptional childhood, I I, I don't think. Um, I just grew up in an ordinary home, one sister, dog, two parents, (laughs) Um, yeah, I, I had a great school life, primary school. Um, you know, I had great friends. Uh, it's as you know now as an adult, it's amazing the the pure purity of the mindset of kids in that age. Like, you just don't, you really don't see any problems with the world. So, yeah, I had a, a pretty pretty peaceful time. Um, up to year seven. Year seven was kind of the bullying year for me. The only bullying year, which I'll explain later. But um, yeah, obviously I've got I'm I've got ginger hair, so that was a low hanging fruit for a lot of people in school. Um, I was not. I I mean I was kind of prepared for it because my sister's got the same colour hair. She's a couple of years older than me, so she'd kind of already been through that. Um, so yeah, my first year at secondary school was a bit tough because I'd never been exposed to, uh, you know, this kind of daily harassment because of my hair and stuff. Um, Mm. however, on the flip side to that, I had so many supportive friends and supportive family that I was able to overcome it very, very quickly. And I grew thick skin. I got I grew thick skin to the point where um to the point where I thought ah, none of this matters. I, like I I stopped caring by about year nine year ten. I'd stopped caring about any of these comments because I thought it doesn't affect me really in any way. So if it if it helps them get through their day by saying this and that, well whatever. Um, but I think it's it's important to realize that not everyone has i'm not just talking about ginger people i'm just talking about anyone that gets bullied uh not everyone has a supportive group of friends and supportive family uh so yeah it pains me to think of of what they must go through because while i have been bullied i still get comments about it from you know strangers or drunk people or something i can deal with it because i i kind of i was taught how to deal with it um so yeah that that's the to the extent of my mental health trouble if you can really call it mental health troubles mm-hmm. uh, was was overcoming that unconfidence of uh people don't like gingers you know people don't want to date gingers or whatever that was something i went through for a while thinking it's it's a you know it's a naturally unattractive feature i thought well my my options are slimmed but um, yeah, it's completely untrue. Which you just got to, uh, if you're in that situation where people are telling you this, 
you just have to prove you, you can't let it sink in. You've got to prove yourself wrong, which is difficult. But for me, I did that. And now you can't bring me down, especially about that because yeah, I'm over it. Mm. Do you think being picked on for being ginger is sort of one of the last taboos in school or just in daily life actually? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you're right because it's a touchy subject, um, especially with prevalent um, oppression issues going on, especially right now. It's a touchy subject, but I think it's considered less politically incorrect than other acts of discrimination or or something, Um, which it doesn't usually go further than name calling or something to, you know, anyone with these features, ginger hair, or maybe, I don't know, braces or glasses. These are all classic things people make fun of. Um, And I think it's important for it to be recognized so it can be dealt with as soon as it's seen. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know if I could compare it to other forms of, of wider scope discrimination like racism or sexism or mm, something like that. But then you could also argue, and I know I'm having an argument with myself right now, but um, my sister's <laughs> been like, you know, harassed in the street and stuff. And I think it, it's important to address it and not, dumb it down as uh, kind of taking something out of context. Because it really, like I say, I'm not saying talking this just about ginger people. Anyone that doesn't have a particular movement behind them, I just think don't let it be considered a joke. But, uh, yeah, you've got to to find your way around it. Go to others for help. Mm -hmm. Don't think that no one will support you because it's not it's not a large movement. That does that make sense? Mm. We get to university now. A lot of guests on previous pods have said that they felt like the pressure put on them by others and themselves was that uni was the be all and end all for them. It's certainly something that I felt. Um, is that something you would agree with? And how did it affect you in your experience? My well, yeah. My first goal was. I want to go to Japan. I want to do some music in Japan and experience that. Um, so from where I was standing when I was 18, going to uni was the only path I could see to, to having a tangible life in Japan that's not limited to three, four months. Um, so, yeah, it was the bill and, and end all for me in order to achieve my goals. Uh, and when I failed that first year, I remember getting the results thinking, that's it, it's over, and I've got debt, and I didn't achieve my dream. But it's, yeah, I took a sidestep onto a different a different major, and uh, it was Asian Pacific Studies. And it was one of the most interesting courses I've ever studied. I loved all of it, and then I still graduated and went to Japan. So... I think university is a very good door opener, but 
you know, if you score badly in a test or if you don't do as well as you thought you would, it's not the end. And there's always ways to to get around that. That's what I've learned. Mm. After university, you moved out of your hometown, Stamford, to London, into a new city with a whole range of thriving music scenes, some specific to certain regions of London as well. I can only imagine what it's like for people coming here that are new. How did you adjust to that? Um, I'd kind of... I've been to a lot of gigs in London, so I wasn't alien to the system or, you know, the, the city life. And plus, I'd been living in Leeds, in Union. It's very metropolitan. It never really sleeps. So uh, I, I was kind of ready for it when I came. What I the, the main culture shock was, I don't want to say everyone's rude in London, but everyone's got places to be. We've all got places I mean? to be. <laughs> yeah. So... You don't you don't get the time of day from as many people as you would up north, um, which it's not really been a hindrance. It's just one of those things. Uh, it's a lot faster paced. Life is fast paced in London, and I knew that, but I didn't know it was this fast paced until I started living here, commuting. You know, even shopping is is just a mad rush everywhere you go. But I have a guilty pleasure for that kind of life, so. <laughs> Alongside your producing, you also work a full-time job. You know, how do you balance that, especially in giving time to your, your loved ones, your friends, family, partners, etc.? Um, it's, a, it's a pretty standard nine-to-five job. So uh, it's not really putting anything, any blockers up. Maybe some days, more than others, music, it, my, my uh, capacity to make music is affected by if I come home and I'm tired or I'm stressed out or something. Uh, for me, making music doesn't de-stress me because I I just need to, you know, relax if, if that's the case. Uh, in terms of my family, my girlfriend, everything, it slots pretty well around that, um, especially in London because, like you say, everyone's always busy and then there's kind of these peak times when no one's doing anything. So I feel like my life is... Uh, in a good flow right now living in London more so than it probably would have been in my quiet hometown well that's good that's good you've got a really good balance going on looking ahead now is is producing full-time something you'd like to pursue or have ambitions to do or are you sort of just enjoying it as a side hustle at the moment and keeping your sort of you know your work and your work-life balance in check I would like to to have it I'd certainly like to make more of it um, I think as a performer, I enjoy it so much as like a hobby. I, I wouldn't discount having it as a career, but I would much sooner be making music. Um, I don't know, a dream of mine would be making music for some movies or video games or something like that, where I feel I can, uh, you know, take myself out of that nightclub setting where I can just make music uh, for, for so many different contexts. That's my true dream of utilizing music into a career is, yeah, just going full out creative and, yeah, making for all different types of mediums. 
Our final topic of conversation, Con, and it's one I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? If I'm being honest, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, I don't feel, I mean, apart from the natural stresses of work and, and the virus and everything going on, uh, I feel like I, my my mind is pretty healthy. Yeah. Mm, that's great. Um you, you said previously that you didn't have as many sort of mental health traumas, but what age do you think you were when you first realised that, you know, these feelings that you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Hmm, probably about uh, year 10, maybe, when we people were old enough to hold serious conversations about uh, bullying and you know, different things that have been happening. Plus, when, when I realised that, there were, you know, once I, I knew people that were getting physically bullied, it's just a whole different thing. Um, and what there, yeah, I started to realize that all these kind of this pent up frustration about my hair or about anything that people were picking on me for was completely, for me anyway, I know this doesn't count for everyone, was in my control. I thought, well, if I think I've got the capacity to deal with this, I'm just going to deal with it. And uh, yeah, that's when I realized that I can turn this mental state around before it starts to, like, you know, poison me. Mm. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? You know, these the, these could be things people might say, sounds, sensations. Yeah, it's, it's unnecessary... Uh, I don't use the word attacks lightly, but it's these unnecessary jabs at me or at people uh, that are complete. I mean, no, none of it's really justified, but with no reason. Most of this nowadays, as an adult, most of this would occur uh, by drunk people or people under the influence of something. Or on uh, social media. <laughs> yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Social media is a big one. But... It's the unprovoked attacks that I just can't often wrap my head around the the mental process of going through going through typing this thing or, or saying this thing um, with with knowledge of what you're saying or doing to someone. And maybe it's because I'm not a bully. I can't understand. I know often, you know, it's a bit of a cliche. I know, but bullies of, often are getting bullied or they have something. That, that they need to sort out with themselves. But yeah, um, my dad always said to me, if um, he said, if he's wearing a, a big stupid hat and someone shouts at him for, for wearing a stupid hat, well, he's the one wearing the hat. So why would, why should someone else's rage affect me if I feel fine enough to, if I feel okay enough to go around with ginger hair, Someone getting angry because of that, well, in my opinion, that's their deep-rooted problem, not mine. Mm, so that's how, kind of how I deal with it. But I never instigate fights or anything. I, I mean, I guess I'm a bit of a pacifist, but I just think anger is wasted on these people. I think you're right. What what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that worked and which ones maybe that haven't? Absolutely. Number one is conversations with people. Um, people that 
are my friends, people that are strangers, my family, anyone that is willing to hold this conversation with you, you will benefit from it. You'll benefit if they have the opposite view, then that's also beneficial because you can understand where they're coming from. And like I say, this is this is only applies for people that are willing to have a sensible conversation, not arguing, not fighting, um, just a discussion. Because I've tried meditating, I've tried organizing my own thoughts, which is great sometimes. But for issues that are affecting my the way I'm feeling, you've, I've just for me, I've got to have a conversation with someone. Just talk about it. You don't have to be defending yourself. Just start the conversation, and it, it you know, you'll learn things. They'll learn things. Uh, that's the best way to to go about dealing with any small or large problem. Just talk to someone. Mm, and it's okay to vent. We always say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know it's it's harder for some people to talk, um, mm. which kind of loops me back to support on social media and you know my experience with Future Funk Vaporwave. There there are people that suffer with depression and stuff on Vaporwave uh, in the Vaporwave scene, and you can see from Twitter, especially Twitter, the support is so good and. Yeah, people seem to really love each other. Uh, I think for those that are uncomfortable having uh, real-life conversations about these issues, the internet, doing it at your own pace by text is like a perfectly viable alternative. That's great, mate. It's really great to hear. How do you support friends in your own social group who may have mental health issues themselves or might be going through a poor period of mental health, whether that be men or women? Uh, I think the first... The first step is listening, um, whether or not, so at the risk of sounding fairly horrible, for me, someone with, with very good mental health, it's, it can be difficult for me to empathize on the same level as those with uh, fragile mental health, because I, the simple answer is I can't understand how they're feeling because I've never been in that mental state. But what I can do is listen to how they're feeling and bring in my perspective as as someone with good mental health um, as a kind of encouragement or just just a way for them to consider new things or new opportunities, ways to get around this mental block they're going through. Um, yeah, listening and making sure that you're actively listening, not just not just hearing words, that you're understanding their issue. Otherwise, they're shouting into the void, which is exactly what will make them spiral back into themselves you know, and go even even deeper into bad mental health. Hmm. Active listening is something that we always try and, and, and promote a lot on this on this podcast, um, Connor, so I'm really glad you mentioned it. Toxic masculinity is obviously something that you can imagine we talk about a lot. And it's something we try and break down a lot. In your experience, what what do you define as toxic masculinity, and what examples of it have you experienced in your life that you can share with the listeners? Toxic masculinity, to me, uh, in my experience, like I said, I'm sure everyone has different definitions and experiences, but it's uh, what something that is supposed to define a man, which without this feature, you are not a man, um, or by not doing something, you, you're less of a man. 
I think that's toxic masculinity because, but, hmm, for example, if you've got a flamboyant dress sense, your people probably will say, "Are you gay?" or, uh, you know, "Do you like do you like women's clothes?" or something like that. The fact is, your dress sense—it's material on your body. It's, it doesn't make you less of a man. And uh, I think the same can be said for women that are worried they can't do this because it's not very girly or it's not very feminine. Um, I think it goes both ways, but absolutely the, the, the definition of what it is to be a man, being strong, people think, oh, you've you're not lean enough to get girls, you're not lean enough to get boys or whichever. Um, and I think it's, it's just, it plants these, these poor stereotypes in people's minds uh, of what it's like to be acceptable. So, mm. yeah, I think it's important to just, yeah, dis- slowly dismantle it. You can't just dismantle it overnight. Slowly dismantle it and allow people to see that actually none of that matters. Mm, I completely agree, and I think it's I think it's a great definition which you've given, Connor. I also talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity, Connor. How would you define that, and and what qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as being positively masculine? Mm, that's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer, especially in um, these times where femininity and masculinity are, are not barriers people people enjoy holding up to themselves that that often. Um, I think to be positively masculine is self-confidence about who you are. Uh, And that can be whether you're a woman or a man, that you want to have masculinity as part of who you are. Uh, It's just, it's the confidence. And and without changing the question, I think uh, the same can apply for just being a, a, a pos- positive person. You mm, can be, yeah, because you you can be masculine in the physical sense of you've got big muscles and you work out a lot. And if you if you walk around thinking I feel great in the way I look, um, and you keep it at that level or you want to encourage people, that's great. But that's positive masculinity. Whether you're, maybe you're not super ripped, um, you know, maybe you've got a dad bod. <laughs> that's a term I hear a lot these days. Mm. And so It's only used for people who are like Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I love a dad bod, but it's yeah, like Leonardo exactly. DiCaprio. Always makes zero sense to me. No, you just love Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but so people built like that, if they're if you're comfortable or or something you're comfortable you're confident in the way you look and you don't feel like you need to change to please anyone that's positive masculinity and exuding that and showing people that you're confident because of who you are then you've accomplished it in my opinion um and yeah the same goes for women as well mm. in in femininity masculinity it works both ways these days i think why do you think historically men have struggled to express how they're feeling about their mental health or feelings in general has society taught us that it's it's not okay for us to show vulnerability or have we as men done it to ourselves or maybe both um 
I think it's a vulnerability thing. So I'm not going to use the argument of, oh, it's biological, it's prehistoric, we're hunting gatherers, because, you know, it's been used a million times, and I don't think it means that much these days. But I, I, I think it's a vulnerability thing where you want men want to appear confident. And don't get me wrong, women want to appear confident as well. But it, it's probably a deeper-rooted social issue. Uh, men had to kind of show that they're willing to stand up all the time. They're not going to pass out or faint or they're not afraid. Um, yeah, and a bravery. They had to put on a mask, would you say? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. Yeah, they had to put on a, a mask to to yeah to upkeep their confidence, which is the ultimate, like you said earlier, the goal of being a positive masculine person is to show that you're confident with who you are. But if you're if you're feigning that confidence, I think it can turn into toxic masculinity because then you start having to make up for your insecurities by doing other things that, that can be malicious occasionally or can offend people. And uh, I think that's one of the roots to, to the problem. Having said that, there's a more of a unanimous support, like a feeling of unanimous support, um, I think, now, where it's considered okay. And in fact, it's encouraged for anyone, dis despite whether you're a man or a woman or anything you identify as, that mental health is is so separate from your physical body that it it doesn't matter and it shouldn't matter who you are or what you look like. It's it's like it's not a physical it's not necessarily a physical uh, detriment. So you can't limit it to just one sex or you can't limit it to a certain type of people. Everyone has a brain. Everyone has mental health. I think that's a great point to, to end that question on, Connor. I've got one more question now, and it's been a really great pod. I've, I've loved speaking to you. Um, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health, their mental health issues, and let them know that it's okay to vent? I think to improve the situation if we're, if we're talking exclusively about men is encourage speaking you know I, I said earlier about have a conversation with someone it doesn't necessarily matter who they are or what they believe just, just strike up a conversation I think that's something that we need to encourage for, for men right now because I hear a lot of male to male support encouragement um, you know, men sharing mental health with each other. But I think this, if the spectrum became even broader to there's women's mental health, men's mental health, and everyone can go to each other, the same destination for support, then I think it will lift a lot of stigma off because everyone will be receiving the same support from one another. And there can't be any less or more for women's mental health and there will be men's mental health. 
Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Decks. I want to say a big thank you to Connor, aka Mr. Wax, for being my special guest on this episode and letting me go Behind the Decks with him. Never forget, one of the tracks off his Music Medicine EP will play us out, and I'll put some links to where you can follow Mr. Wax on social media and stream his music in the description of the pod. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or for feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Decks, and remember, it's always okay to vent. Behind the Decks.